0: Support of this podcast is through an unrestricted educational grant provided by La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company.
1: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Dishpande. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lawrence Bussey, MD, MBA. He's an assistant professor at the Emory University in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Sleep and Allergy Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Bussey. Today's iCritical Care Podcast is going to cover a talk from the SECM Annual Congress 2017, talk focuses on end organ perfusion. Dr. bassi do you have any disclosures to make?
2: I do have one disclosure. I've received consulting fees from La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company.
1: Okay, thank you. So um, as a perioperative physician, I've seen providers use systolic blood pressure goals as well as mean arterial goals. What do you think would be appropriate to use in the perioperative setting? You
2: know, you have to sort of understand the physiology of, of blood flow and, and basically, you know, where, uh, where and how blood flows through uh, our body. Uh, when you get down to the arteriolar level, uh, you're not really, I think, really dealing with pulsatile flow. Uh, so, you know, in my opinion, to, uh, to perfuse organs, and, and I'm not a surgeon uh, as a disclaimer but in order to perfuse an organ so that it's functioning and in my opinion it's really the mean arterial pressure it's the It's the pressure head that gets to the arterioles, uh, sort of taking into consideration pulsatile pressure. So, yes, I think reasonable to look at a systolic blood pressure, especially when someone's got some very bad diastolic blood pressures, such as in very severe arterial sclerosis. I think that the map is is really what guides us as intensivists in the ICU in in dealing with shock.
1: What are the things that govern organ perfusion?
2: Organ perfusion uh, and blood pressure essentially... Behaves according to an autoregulatory curve, and that's a a classical curve that that, uh, I'm sure the listeners will remember from medical school, which is that blood pressure, uh, blood flow remains fairly constant over a a fairly wide range of physiological blood pressures, Uh, and uh, and this is this is uh, maintained uh, by. Uh, uh, very sophisticated mechanisms, uh, homeostatic mechanisms in the body uh, that, uh, that, uh, that allow for this fairly consistent blood flow uh, through the autoregulatory curve. This curve, however, can change in shape. It can, it can shift upward and to the right, if you will, and someone who's chronically hypertensive such that the autoregulatory zone, uh, if you will, of, of blood pressures is, is higher in order to maintain perfusion to the organs. And I think we see this uh, anecdotally uh, in, in folks, let's say, that are chronically hypertensive and, uh, and their pressures drop a little bit to what we would consider normal levels and their, and their urine output, for example, falls off. Uh, but this curve can also change uh, its phenotype entirely, uh, such as in states of shock, where the, this very sophisticated homeostatic uh, uh, milieu, if you will, of, uh, of, uh, of blood pressure uh, maintenance uh, breaks down and the, the curve can uh, flatten out and shift such that blood flow through organs, uh, let's say in periods of bad shock, doesn't have the autoregulatory zone. Uh, and flow is really governed by a classic pressure-flow relationship. More pressure equals more flow and vice versa.
1: I feel that the understanding of physiology especially critical opening pressures, autoregulation curves, and end organ perfusion are extremely important to the outcomes of patients in our hospitals. Are you aware of any technologies or monitoring methodologies, biomarkers that can be used to guide therapy? So I think
2: uh, you're, you're
1: exactly right to sort of identify uh,
2: the the issue. And uh, frankly, we have a big need for uh, for better technology and for better biomarkers. You know, the, the, the blunt instruments, if you will, that we've used uh, in the past and, and continue to use today, uh, include things like uh, serum lactate, in, include things like uh, urine output. Now, as far as technology looking at actual organ perfusion, you know, absolutely, we've got some technology with, that, that could look at blood flow on a microvascular level, uh, but that's not really realistic for the average patient in the ICU. That's, that's also uh, fairly rudimentary technology. So, you know, we're left with looking at uh, proxies of organ perfusion, and that is things like that measure cardiac output, such as pul- uh, pulse pressure uh, variation uh, and echo, and I use in my ICU I try to be as clinical as possible with my markers of organ perfusion and that is I really rely on things like lactate things like urine output uh and uh and uh and my physical exam frankly uh you know looking at looking at skin looking at uh neck veins uh looking at uh mental status uh I think those things are most sensitive in my opinion now of course there's operator error and room for interpretation there but as far as technology, we really don't have a whole lot that can really look at on an organ-specific level uh, is is an organ uh, being perfused adequately.
1: When we discuss end organ perfusion or end organ damage, I think it is important to bring in the particular organ of interest. For example, delirium, when you have decreased perfusion to the brain. I was unable to find
2: a whole lot of literature in the critically ill uh, with regard to uh, delirium, and I think it's also a little bit of a, a leap of faith that you really equate delirium with uh, with hypotension. Uh, it's a it's a uh, there are certainly other reasons why someone can be delirious in an ICU for for a number of reasons, which we don't need to get into. But the the analyses that I that I looked at actually looked at specifically delirium and hypotension but it was in a controlled format it was in, a, in, a, in an operative set of patients so I think that's the best we can do in order to really uh, link uh, delirium and hypotension not a whole lot of uh, there's too much noise I think in a critical care population to really look at uh, delirium as a direct sequela of hypotension that said in the operative population it's been found that uh, delirium uh, is, uh, is that hypotension is a, is a uh, direct contributor to delirium. It's an independent risk factor for delirium. So, you know, it does exist, but I think just by virtue of the complexities that, that we have uh, in the
1: ICU, uh, I don't think it's been adequately evaluated. How is this different from the kidney or the heart? I think the the pathophysiology is the same. I think that uh, a, a
2: hypoperfused organ doesn't work well. So I think the root cause is the same, whether or not the blood pressure, the critical closing pressure, if you will, is the same uh, in in every organ. You know, I don't I don't think that's the case. I think, frankly, uh, that uh, it's probably different in every organ, but I think it's uh, similar. Uh, and it's also not just the, the blood pressure, it's not just the pressure head. We know that uh, when, uh, when an organ is hyperperfused, it can certainly uh, uh, not function well, but there's also a uh, big cascade of inflammatory markers that occur uh, in sepsis uh, and in other processes that contribute to organ dysfunction as well. This occurs in the brain. Uh, this occurs uh, certainly in the kidneys. This also occurs in the heart. So. Uh, it, you know, it's an overgeneralization to say, oh, it's the same thing. We're just cutting off the blood supply, uh, and nothing's going to work. Uh, it's a lot more complex. Now that said, you know, when someone has cardiac arrest, none of the organs work. So we do know that at some point, when there's absolutely no blood flow for some picture of time, which is fairly short, the organs will will all ultimately fail. Uh, but uh, you know, when you're dealing with the nuances of evolving hypotension. In uh, hypoperfusion, I think it's a little bit more complex than uh, not enough pressure equals organ dysfunction.
1: In the era of personalized or individualized medicine, how do you see us moving ahead with end organ perfusion on a bigger stage, and especially when we talk about blood pressure management? I actually do think that there should
2: be uh, personalized medicine with regard to that stuff. The question is, how do we do it? Uh, and more importantly, do we have a baseline understanding of what to do uh, in the first place? I've, I've looked at uh, our management of shock uh, globally uh, and uh, by region. And, uh, you know, we do, di- do things differently here than we do in Europe. Uh, the Canadians do things differently in the United States than Australia. So we're sort of all over the map with regard to treatment of shock. Uh, so I'm not even sure if we really even know uh, what what the best measures to, uh, to treat shock in the first place. So, uh, but I do think that uh, you know once we uh, understand the the uh, uh, the syndrome, uh, and and as we continue to build our tools in the toolbox to manage this complex syndrome, it's not a disease. It certainly is uh, uh, more syndromic. Uh, I think that. Uh, and if we are able to develop technology to to look at whether it's a biomarker or a, 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 a some sort of catheter or or whatever to look at individualized pressures and organ functions, I think it would it would be a, a great development if we could uh, personalize blood
1: pressure goals. How do you see operationalizing personalized medicine in blood pressure management?
2: It Probably would involve looking at everything that we have, looking at our catecholamines. Looking at our fluid resuscitative strategies. Looking at our non-catecholamine pressors, such as vasopressin and and uh, and uh, angiotensin, the newly uh, um, uh, approved drug. Looking at uh, corticosteroids. Uh, looking at vitamin C, and truly understanding what each component contributes to uh, the improvement, uh, the maintenance, and improvement of blood pressure. And I think only after we've done that will we be able to uh, truly understand and, and you know a, a typical patient in front of us and be able to personalize uh, their care. This also has to be done uh, with, I think, uh, improved uh, biomarkers for shock, such as uh, you know maybe procalcitonin will will continue to uh, uh, surprise us in in managing. Uh, in shock, uh, you know something better than a lactate, something up the food chain from lactate, you know things like that. So I think we have to get smarter and better with uh, looking at our uh, our objective metrics uh, as to uh, whether or not we're succeeding, as well as get a better understanding of all the tools we have available to us.
1: Okay, great. Moving to your recent publication, angiotensin two in the treatment of vasodilatory shock. What do you think is the role of angiotensin two in hemodynamic? management
2: so uh obviously with the backdrop of of, uh now with the understanding that that hypotension is so so bad uh, and uh, you know looking at the preservation of of blood flow or the restoration of blood flow uh uh, yes i think uh, angiotensin 2 definitely has a role uh and i can tell you that uh in my experience and i'm sure in many listeners experience we've all had those patients that. Uh, have bad shock that have outrun us uh, that end up on two or three catecholamines and vasopressin, and we're throwing steroids at them uh, and, and digging around for the next thing, whether it's a bicarb drip or, or uh, calcium pushes or whatever. So uh, you know, I think that uh, now that we've got a third vasopressor with a mechanism of action that's different from the other two, uh, from catecholamine uh, and uh, from uh, vasopressin. Uh, I think uh, it definitely has a role. Uh, personally, I foresee its use most likely as a second or most likely third line agent. Norepinephrine is still the preferred uh, first line agent by virtue, I think, of, of most of the research that's just looked at it. I will tell you that, and I'm sure as you know, Ranjit, there's no presser or combination of pressors that have been consistently shown to improve any mortality over any other presser or combination of pressers. Uh, so we go with what we know the best, uh, which is norepinephrine as first-line therapy. You know, the most recent guidelines, the uh, surviving sepsis septic- guidelines from 2016, uh, you know, still talk about vasopressin as, as the adjunctive, as uh, as uh, are epinephrine and dopamine in certain cases. But you know even with those drugs on, uh, on board, uh, we still see a fair amount of refractory shock. Uh, and I think it's that situation when when one would turn to angiotensin too. I, I think that pulling it out of the uh, out of the crash cart when a patient is going down uh, is not the right time for it. I, I frankly think that using it, a little bit earlier in the course of the disease uh, when a patient is salvageable, obviously that's our whole goal in doing what we do, so that, that, uh, that the patient can receive and be treated with multimodal therapy, low doses of multiple agents, which uh, all work to improve the blood pressure, and by the way, all have synergy, and uh, we can avoid some of the toxic, uh, adverse effects of large doses of single-agent therapy, tachyarrhythmias, for example, when, when catecholamines are used, or digital ischemia, for example, when high doses of vasopressin are used. So I think uh, its role as a depressor and a balanced approach in someone with high-grade shock or or fairly uh, resistant, uh, catecholamine-resistant shock, is probably a, it's probably the best, best place for it.
1: Okay, great. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. Please check our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Dishpande. Thank you.
0: Support of this podcast is through an unrestricted educational grant provided by La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.